You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In the face of more and more disinformation on different platforms, what can be done to ensure that American voters can make informed decisions in free and fair elections? Joining me is Richard Hassan, a professor of law and political science at the University of California, Irvine. His new book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. It's hard to believe that more than a year after the presidential election, there are still so many people who believe that the election was stolen from former President Donald Trump, despite all the court rulings to the contrary. How did he manage this, or how did this come about? Well, a big reason for the continued persistence of belief in the false claim that the 2020 election was stolen is the fact that uh, Donald Trump, the former president, was able to communicate this idea directly to voters and to others uh, through his platforms on social media. If we lived in the old technological days when there were just a few television stations, some newspapers, and and a few other ways of, of getting news, it would have been hard for someone like Trump to have a platform where he could, in an unmediated way, repeat the false claim. Um, but in our new social media cable news environment, it's very easy to have repetition of these claims. By one count in the New York Times, Donald Trump went to Twitter about 400 times between the day of Election Day in early November and November 19th to make the false claim that the election was stolen. And so uh, I think you can draw a pretty straight line from Trump's statements to both the belief among Republicans today, among some Republicans today, that the election was stolen, as well as the January 6th insurrection. You may remember it was Donald Trump who first on Twitter invited his supporters to a, quote, wild time in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, the date that Congress counted the Electoral College votes. Describe what cheap speech is. So the term cheap speech uh, is not originally mine. It originates with a professor at UCLA named Eugene Volokh, and 
he was writing back in 1995 in an article in the Yale Law Journal, an article called Cheap Speech and What It Will Do, uh, about the upcoming uh, information revolution we were about to have, where we go from that scarcity of means of communicating, you know, just a few television and radio stations and uh, some newspapers, to a flood of speech. And Volokh saw this as a great opportunity. Uh, you know, back in the 1950s, if you didn't like something in the New York Times, you could write a letter to the editor. You know, if you're lucky, it would get printed, and otherwise you could just yell into the wind. And now, of course, everyone can have a platform and can say whatever they like, and the only limit on how much it spreads is how much people want to read or hear what you have to say. Uh, so he saw the loss of intermediaries as a mostly good thing for democracy and for opening up channels of communication. And I think there are many good things uh, that have happened with the change to this cheap speech era. Um, but it also has a dark side. And in the book, Cheap Speech, I argue that there's a second meaning to the term, which is that uh, what uh, we have today is a system that privileges low-value speech over high-value speech. And what I mean by that is, I think for voters in elections, one of the highest-valued speech is investigative journalism by journalists who spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, very expensive to figure out what's going on and to hold politicians accountable for what they're doing. That's really hard to produce, really expensive to produce, and the economic model that supports that has collapsed as advertising dollars have shifted to places like Google and Facebook. But creating literally fake news, you know, making things up and putting them on a, a nice-looking website that looks like the news, that, that's very cheap to do. And there's actually some demand for that now for a bunch of complicated reasons. And so we live in a cheap speech system where um, not everything that voters should have easy access to is available, um, and lots of things that might distract voters or mislead voters, that's very easy to get. And so with the loss of intermediaries, it's harder for voters to make competent decisions. It, it strikes me that if someone who watches only one news channel, let's say Fox, comes away with different information and a different viewpoint than someone who watches, let's say, CNN. And as you write in your book, there's no Walter Cronkite anymore, like a trusted source of information that people can go to. Right. So, you know, it, it's just a totally different atmosphere. And the question is, you know, how do you get voters the good information that they need when we're all not just having different opinions about things, but a different set of facts about what's going on? Law School about his book, Cheap Speech. There are fears expressed all the time that we're losing our democracy. Is it the threat to democracy from cheap speech? Is that more dangerous? Or is it the threat just from people who are taking over some local and state government's election systems? You know, the conspiracy theorists, the believers in Trump having won the election. Is that more dangerous than the cheap speech? Well, I think I wouldn't separate the two because I think one of the reasons why we had the January 6th insurrection, why there are candidates running for office uh, to run elections uh, who now say that the 2020 election was stolen, despite all uh, reliable evidence to the contrary, is because we live in this um, media environment in which there is no penalty for making these kind of statements. I, I don't mean a I don't mean a government penalty, but I mean a penalty in the court of public opinion. People people don't just laugh away 
conspiracy theories and theories of stolen elections. But when you have a political system where millions of people don't believe that the election was legitimately run, they might be more willing to tolerate an attempt to steal back the election of the next time around. And so, you know, I really think that there was before we had the social media revolution already polarization, but social media has made it more polarized. We already had some people who um, don't have full respect for our democratic process, but the media environment makes it easier to spread those ideas and also for people to find each other. You know, so one of the things that we saw about January 6th is not only were there people who embraced the conspiracy theories about the election being stolen, but they could use Facebook groups to find each other to organize right? the communications revolution. People from all over the country could find each other. There may be only one in 100,000 people who are willing to do something, but when you can band them all together from across the country, they could be much more powerful than you know, if people were trying to find each other in old-fashioned ways. And I'm not saying that we should return to the days of Walter Cronkite. I mean, there was a lot of important news that wasn't covered. And think about the George Floyd uh, racial justice movement. Much easier to organize when you have the ability to share information, to share videos of police brutality, etc. But we have to think about what we can do to give voters the tools that they need to be able to get accurate information to understand what's going on in our elections and our democracy. There are some who say more speech is better, more speech helps. Do you think that there should be laws limiting speech? So generally speaking, I don't favor laws limiting speech. I I only have two small exceptions to that uh, in the proposals in my book, Cheap Speech, both of which the Supreme Court has indicated are constitutional. One are laws that limit foreign interference in American elections. And the Supreme Court, in a case called Blumen versus Federal Election Commission, affirmed a lower court ruling that such laws don't violate the First Amendment. The other is a um, set of laws that would that would ban empirically verifiable false election speech. So if you lie about when, where. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts or how people vote. We have a case that's pending right now about a person who lied that the that you could vote by text, and he directed those messages to uh, African-American um, voters in the 2016 election. About 5,000 people tried to vote by text or hashtag. I don't know how many of them ultimately realized and were able to vote. But that sort of speech should be, I think, outlawed. That's very, very narrow. That doesn't apply to most of the kinds of troubling statements about elections that we hear. 
most of what I want to do is to enhance what voters know. So, for example, I want to improve our disclosure laws. So if you're actually being targeted in, uh, I use an example, uh, in Alabama, we had some Democratic operatives who pretended to be very conservative Baptists supporting Roy Moore, trying to claim that uh, Roy Moore would, would want to get rid of alcohol in the state of um, Alabama as a way of trying to get these Republican voters not to vote. I think that Alabama voters would want to know that these conservative Baptists were actually liberal Democrats or that it wasn't African-Americans trying to convince people that Hillary Clinton doesn't believe in Black Lives Matter. It was Russian operatives uh, in a boiler room in St. Petersburg. So improved disclosure, as well as labeling altered videos, so-called deepfakes, as altered so that people know what they're seeing and whether they can believe what they see with their own eyes. So tools like that on the legal side, I think, would be the most helpful. In the past, the risk of stolen elections seemed to be minimal. You, you know, you'd hear a case here and there, North Carolina, whatever. Are the risks greater today? I think that the amount of uh, election fraud, whether committed by voters or by others, is quite low. Uh, there are isolated instances. We see it in every election, uh, a, a ballot here, a ballot there. This was, in 2020, the most watched and investigated election, I think, in American history. And it turned up very few cases of fraud. You know, the idea is that the fraud is going to be so massive that it's going to swing elections, but so well done that it can't be detected. And it's just not realistic. And, uh, you know, when we see fraud in elections, it tends to be in small elections where moving a few votes could make a difference. Uh, I certainly think we need to continue to be on guard against these kinds of attempts to manipulate election outcomes. But many of the laws that are being passed in the name of preventing voter fraud are really more about pleasing the Republican base who has been told that our elections are rife with fraud and uh, that evinces a kind of response from these election officials. When I think about the next presidential election, I just wonder what's going to happen. Is it going to be like elections before 2020 or are there going to be outrageous claims all kinds of problems at election sites and in counting votes. What has to be done now to make it as normal as possible to avoid some of these problems? Well, so in Shape Speech, I argue that there are some legal steps we could take to improve uh, the information atmosphere for our elections. That's only one piece of what we need for um, free and fair elections, elections that people will accept as legitimate the next time. In a piece that just posted at the Harvard Law Review Forum, I advocate a number of steps to avoid election subversion, future elections. That's where the uh, election loser uh, might try and get declared the election winner, as we saw Trump try to do in 2020 when he tried to manipulate the electoral college process to turn his defeat into a victory. I mean, there are a number of things that we could do legally uh, unrelated to speech. For example, Congress could pass a law that would require every state to use voting machines that produce a piece of paper, ballots that could be recounted by hand in the event that there is a problem with how an election is run. Um, you may remember that Donald Trump in 2020 claimed that the Georgia election was fraudulent and they did a full hand recount of every ballot in the state. Now, you can't do that with fully electronic machines. So there are a number of things that could be done in terms of 
ballot transparency, voting uh, rules uh, being transparent, also fixing the Electoral College rules that Congress applies. Uh, there's some talk of a bipartisan compromise there. But I think beyond that, it's going to have to be not just legal change, but social and political organizing to find those people in the center who might disagree about all kinds of things politically, but agree that we should have a free and fair election where the results are not dictated by uh, whoever's counting the votes, but instead reflect the will of the people. I want to talk for a moment about Elon Musk taking over Twitter. He is a free speech absolutist. He said that there should be minimal interference. If it's a gray area, let the speech exist. How do you think his taking over Twitter will change things? Well, first of all, uh, he might say he's a free speech absolutist, but if he wants to run a platform that's actually going to make money, I don't <laughs> think he's going to let everything on the platform that the First Amendment would allow. So, you know, if there were no moderation of content, for example, our feeds on on Twitter are, would be filled with um, hate speech, would be filled with pornography, would be filled with a lot of advertising for male enhancement pills. I mean, it would just be the kind of place that nobody would want to go. And so uh, I think what he means is that Donald Trump and some of the other conservatives who were removed from the platform should be restored. I think that's very problematic. I think as a private company, Twitter can make that decision. But I think that voters uh, and consumers can also object to that. And the employees of the company can object by leaving. You know, the tech world is a very competitive world in terms of hiring employees. And if people at these companies object, uh, you're going to lose some of the brain talent. And so, uh, you know, we'll see what decisions Elon Musk ends up making. Uh, I don't know that it's going to make things better. Uh, I don't know that he's in it for the profit as opposed to as a kind of vanity project. But uh, we'll see how things go. I'm, I'm not at all even certain he'll end up owning the platform, given uh, how things have been going. Rick, what are your final thoughts? So... I think American democracy is at a very challenging period. Uh, we have this highly polarized environment in which false claims about elections are easily spread. And I think the question we really need to ask is, how can we assure that we can have both free and fair elections, as well as a system where uh, people can vigorously compete with each other, uh, but where election lies don't take over in terms of voters thinking about how to make decisions about you know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much, Rick. That's Professor Richard Hassan of the University of California, Irvine, the author of Cheap Speech, 
how disinformation poisons our politics, and how to cure it. This week, the unprecedented leak of a draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade used up all the oxygen around the Supreme Court. Little noticed was an opinion in which the justices were unanimous in deciding that Boston violated the Constitution by refusing to fly a Christian civic group's flag at City Hall while raising the banners of some 50 other organizations. The justices rejected the city's contention that its flag-raising program was a form of government speech that wasn't subject to the First Amendment, something that Justice Elena Kagan was unequivocal about during the oral arguments. A program that basically now says, and, and, and previously, we welcome all comers except for the most reprehensible discriminatory speech, and religious speech. That's what this program is. And why should we understand that to be government speech, to say everything's good except religion? Joining me is First Amendment law expert Timothy Zick, a professor at William & Mary Law School. Justice Breyer wrote the majority opinion and said the central question was whether the city had created a public forum for private speech. Can you explain that for us? Sure. So when the government opens up a public space, say a plaza or something like that, for private speakers to come in, a sort of diversity of views to let them communicate in that space, then it's opened up essentially a forum for private speakers. And that's distinguished from the government using a space or a property to communicate its own messages. And that's the sort of central dividing line in this case. If the government was using the flagpole to send out its own messages, then it would be government speech and it would be immune from First Amendment concerns. Exactly. When the government speaks, it gets to decide what it wants to say, what viewpoint it wants to express, what message it wants to communicate, which is quite different from you know, when the government regulates private speakers, it has to sort of obey the opposite rule, which is to say it cannot discriminate based on what a private speaker wants to say, what viewpoint they want to communicate, et cetera. Breyer set out a three-factor test for deciding whether a message is government speech. Was that a test you've seen before? Yeah, those are factors that the court has relied on in previous cases. So there have been several government speech cases before this one involving things like monuments that are placed in a public park or specialty license plates that a state allows citizens to display on their automobiles or trademarks in the case of federal trademark law. And so what the court was doing here was sort of culling factors from those precedents and applying them to, in this case, Boston's flagpole policy. So the factors that are relevant here are the history of the expression at issue, have flagpoles and flags been used historically, you might say, by governments to speak? What's the public's likely perception as to who's doing the speaking? Who's the statement going to be attributed to? And then the extent to which the government has actively shaped or controlled the expression. And I think it's fair to say, reading Justice Breyer's opinion, that the last element there seemed to be the most prominent one. Indeed, he seemed to suggest that Boston had a good case with respect to the first two elements, But since it hadn't really exercised any control as to what flags went on this third flagpole until this case, until a Christian flag was presented to it, that was the problem. What I'm curious about is this was a unanimous decision, yet the district court and the appellate court sided with the city. How did they both get it so wrong? 
Yeah, and I think, again, if, if you look at the court's factors, which is what the lower courts are looking at, too, the, the sort of history of flags use over time, governments, you know, typically, traditionally have communicated messages and sentiments through flags. There's no question about that. And on a place like the plaza, which sits right next to City Hall, and a third flagpole that flies a flag next to the United States flag and the state flag of Massachusetts, one might attribute whatever goes on that third flag to the government. You know, two of the three factors, then again, seem to point in the city's favor. And, you know, the Supreme Court, as I said, seemed to focus more heavily on the fact that there seemed to be no selectivity or control. So if you're really trying to communicate something, one would expect that you'd want to have some say-so in terms of which flags go on this third flagpole. And, you know, in the 50 instances and hundreds of commemorative ceremonies that have occurred up to this point, Boston hadn't exercised any of that kind of editorial control. Has the Supreme Court struggled to distinguish government speech from private speech in the past? I think it struggles mightily. There's a really basic principle here that government couldn't operate if it couldn't communicate its own points of view, positions, messages, etc., But determining what is and what isn't government speech, when in fact the government is speaking as opposed to regulating private speech, turns out to be a very difficult endeavor. And I think that's what you see in a case like this one. And, you know, in Justice Alito's concurrence, he tries to provide a more focused test in terms of determining when is it that the government is actually speaking. Has it developed a message? Has it sort of communicated that message consistently? Has it deputized? private parties maybe to communicate it. So there is an effort here in the concurrence to try and narrow down the issue, something other than these three sort of amorphous factors. But it's just a concurrence, and the majority just applies these factors. So it's been each case on its own terms and its own facts, which naturally leads to what some might view as inconsistent results. You mentioned Justice Alito's concurrence, and he seemed to be trying to relitigate the Texas case involving the Confederate flag on license plates. Tell us more about that case and why he has a problem with it. Yeah, I think Justice Alito, you know, looking at the the Texas specialty license plate program, just just found it incredible that the public would attribute to the state of Texas the sort of multitude of specialty license plates that the state had allowed. And they range from, you know, sports teams outside of Texas uh, being displayed on these license plates to let's all go play golf. You know, just just a multitude of messages. So it just seemed to him incredible on the attribution part of it, at least, that the public would associate any or a lot of those messages with the state. So I think he was dubious there. And, you know, he is, as you say, trying to relitigate the Texas license plate case, cast it as an outlier in terms of the scope of government speech, because if that's government speech, then he can imagine, you know, lots of other things government does also being characterized that way. And the danger here is the government, under the guise of discriminating against private speech and private speakers, will cast itself in lots of cases as the speaker to try and avoid the First Amendment content neutrality requirement. So he's pushing back you know, very hard against not just that case, but I think the doctrine of government speech and trying to cabin it in some way, narrow it to its essence. In another concurrence, Justice Gorsuch seemed to have a problem with the Lemon case. I think both he and Justice Kavanaugh, who wrote his own concurrence, are concerned that 
what animated this controversy, what made this a controversy in the first place, was a sort of misunderstanding about the place of religious speech in the public square and in public life more generally. So it seems to them that Boston's officials recoiled from the idea of having any kind of Christian flag or religious flag put into the mix, even though they'd allowed like credit unions to fly a flag and lots of different nationalities and so forth. And Justice Gorsuch in particular is tracing that back to sort of an establishment clause problem that he sees it with what's become a very unpopular case, Lemon, which sets forth a test for when the establishment clause is violated. And so there is an effort there to sort of go beyond the speech context and the government speech principle and shed some light on what they think is a related problem. So in essence, their position is, and the court's position has been, when you open a forum like the flagpole, you can't discriminate against religious speakers or religious viewpoints. The Establishment Clause doesn't protect that kind of activity. It's actually sort of contrary to religious freedom to single out religious speakers for special treatment. And that's the fight that I think Justice Gorsuch is pointing to in, in his concurrence. Does he seem to be on a sort of mission? It seems to echo a a little bit of the oral arguments in the case of the football coach who wants to pray on the 50-yard line. Yeah, I think religious freedom in general has been a very sort of front and center part of the Supreme Court supermajority's agenda. So they've taken lots of free exercise cases and religious freedom cases. And I think there is an effort here to move some of the the brush, if you will, out. And Lemon is one of those precedents that's been problematic and criticized for a long time. And so, yeah, I think there are echoes of the football coach prayer case. He mentioned several others that have been decided recently, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, for example, public funding for parochial schools, all of them based on this sort of neutrality principle that you cannot, under the religion clauses, single out religious viewpoints for burdens or different rules than you'd apply to other persons or speakers. Nothing prevents Boston from changing its policies going forward. And the city has said that in the event of a loss at the court, it will probably change its policy. What would a policy change entail that would make this government speech? I think they have to make it clearer or clear, I guess one would say, that this is not a forum for just any comers, anyone who wants to display a flag. They've got to exercise the kind of control that the court says is missing, the editorial control in their policy. And the court actually points to different flag flying policies from other jurisdictions like San Jose, where they make clear that flagpoles are not intended to serve as a forum for free expression by the public. And then they list approved flags that can be flown as an expression of the city's official sentiment. And that's not what the city of Boston was doing, was opening up this space and inviting speakers of all kinds to come in and then shutting the door to just this one particular speaker. I mean, the easiest thing for Boston to do is simply to fly its own city flag on that third flagpole and be done with it. But if they do want to open that flag up to different flags of you know, non-city entities, they're going to have to be much more selective and much clearer about what it is they're trying to communicate the public. Finally, do you think that this opinion will help courts in the future to be able to distinguish between government speech and and private speech? Not very much, unfortunately. (laughs) And as someone who teaches this subject, uh, you know, I have an interest in getting some clarity in terms of, you know, what the rules are, the standards are in this area. So 
on the one hand, you know, this is a very outlier case in the sense that the governmental entity here, Boston, doesn't seem to have exercised really any selectivity and control. Uh, in most cases, you'll find some selectivity, some editorial control by the governmental entity. It may be that the attribution piece of this is a little uh, unclear or the historical use of this kind of you know, forum for speech is less clear. But I think all this court uh, has done is simply repeat the factors from cases like Walker, the license plate case, and Summum, the public park case. And courts are going to have to take these up one by one. And I think that's part of what Justice Alito is reacting to. We need to give more clarity in terms of a test to lower courts and litigants. Otherwise, we're just going to keep seeing these cases uh, each on their own facts. Thanks so much. That's Professor Timothy Zick of William & Mary Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.